So I want you to uh, uh, <laughs> humor me for a minute. And, okay, pretend you are Jeff Davis for, for uh, just a minute. And <laughs> Braxton Bragg, Joseph Johnston, and John Bell Hood are all in the room with you. And you have to pick one to command the Army of Tennessee. Who do you pick and why? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Civil War Regiments podcast. On today's episode, we'll interview Jeff Williams, also known as the Bearded Historian. Jeff is a fellow Civil War history enthusiast, living historian, and he is active on social media through his Bearded Historian pages on Facebook and Instagram to help engage people with history in places and ways that they least expect it. Jeff also runs a Bearded Historian sticker shop on Etsy, featuring characters and quotes from famous history movies which are very popular with history buffs. Please welcome the Bearded Historian. Without further ado, please welcome my next guest, Jeff Williams. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Hey, Stephen. How's it going? Hey, it's going good, man. I appreciate <laughs> appreciate you joining the show. I've uh, been looking forward to this. Oh, yeah, me too, man. I think this is uh, what you're doing. I've, I really enjoy what you did last season. I'm looking forward to hearing what you got going on this, this next season. So I'm pretty excited. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I'm having fun with it, trying something different. And uh, also, you know, we're busy. We're all we all have other jobs and we all have <laughs> other things going on. It's hard to consistently keep up with content, especially. So I'm kind of just trying to <laughs> do stuff when I can and oh, yeah. uh, and make it worthwhile. So, yeah. And and I, I love all that you do, man. Uh, I'm sure uh, many of our fellow <laughs> Living history listeners uh, will uh, probably already own many of your stickers or they followed your Facebook page. Uh, so, uh, and uh, maybe you'll get some uh, <laughs> more hits after all this. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> well, you know, uh, that'll be fine, you know. <laughs> okay. um, well, what I was, yeah. I was saying, I was yeah. just paying, paying you a compliment as far as uh, I think you're a pretty good voice actor, man. I really, I really enjoyed the way you read the accounts and stuff, I might have to get you to do some voiceover stuff for some of my videos. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, well, thank you very much, man. Uh, I, I love doing that. Um, <laughs> I, I love doing voice impressions. And so <laughs> in a way, um, this podcast just gave me a platform to just play around with different, you know, Southern accents, Northern accents. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and no, believe me, I've, we've watched, I'm sure both of us have watched uh, many a documentary over the years. <laughs> Where oh, you get yeah. inspired by all those Ken Burns and other things where, uh, well, actually, yeah, that's where it comes from. Like the Elijah Hunt Rhodes accounts and Sam Watkins from uh, Ken Burns, the Civil War. <laughs> uh, as hokey as some of that may be, it made an impact on me, you know, and, and yeah. so you really enjoy that stuff. And so thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You never know. Uh, collaborations to come in the future. Yeah. Oh, oh for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Well, man, uh, 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 provided we don't have any other gremlins uh, try to attack the podcast, I'm going to try diving into our questions. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. We'll, we'll give her a shot. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, to begin with, man, um, uh, if you could provide a little about yourself and uh, tell us, um, how did you discover your, your passion and interest in Civil War history? Where did it all begin for Jeff Williams? Well, it probably... It, it stems, I mean, my family has always been kind of big into history. 
And I would say, I mean, my parents helped nurture it, but it was really my grandmother that that really just took a keen liking to the fact that I had a passion for history. Um, she had, you know, elements of research had been something that she was very passionate about. She had graduated from Cumming University as a as a lawyer, was a state lawyer in Tennessee for a long time, was a city lawyer in Lebanon. So she loved research and critically thinking about different things. And that carried over into her passion for genealogy mm. and her sharing, you know, she's kind of like the family historian. So sharing those stories is, I love listening to it. And she was sharp as, I mean, you could even up until you know recently when she passed away, you could ask her like, Hey, our great grandmother, she married, uh, this that gentleman but what was his cousin's sister's name and she'd be like oh that was this and she married this person and they had this child just sharp as a tack and could just pull it out of you know her mind it, but she because she was very passionate about that research <clears throat> and that for me uh, harbored kind of a, a passion for family history um it which also led into local history um and that grew to state history and the national history because I kind of went, I learned through history kind of from the smaller to the bigger rather than the other way around. And that was really fostered by my, my grandmother. And then my parents um, really enjoyed seeing that. And they were very much like, okay, hey, what'd you learn in school today in history class? And I'd tell them, okay, we're going to go, well, we're going to go to this site because it's connected to what y'all were talking about. So we would go to these historic sites and you know, we'd go to battlefields and my brother had gotten into reenacting, civil reenacting. And of course I had to do it. So when I was about 10 or 11 years old, um, I got into reenacting. You when you started. Do what? <clears throat> I'm sorry. How old were you when you started uh, the, the hobby? I was about 10 or 11 years old. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. And I was started off as a drummer and I just, I mean, I was hooked. It was, I mean, as a kid, yeah, it's like you're playing army, understand that. But as I, I started to grow and grow within the hobby, I started to really see that it's like, oh, this is actually an education tool. Um, I can use this to help uh, educate the public about this time period. And it also kind of became a, a very good networking um uh, aspect where you know you're connecting with people who have the same passion and some of those people are from different all kinds of different backgrounds and some of them are within the public history field so um really nurturing those those relationships in a genuine way I, I, as i grew older i found very beneficial and it informed a lot of my own research uh into the the you know the top of the american civil war you know you can read about the soldiers experiences all you want to but to be able to kind of at least get an idea of a shred of what they experienced, it really, it really dives, it, it really brings that subject home is to be able to read an account where guys are talking about marching for five miles and how exhausted they are. And can be like, oh, okay, yeah, I know what that's like. Or we had to stand out in the rain for 24 hours. Well, I went to a hockey. I know what that was like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so, so true, man. <laughs> it really, it really nurtured that 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 passion for history and it that i was a very shy kid and 
being able to connect people through their family history or through their local history, that was a way of how I was able to socialize. Um, and, you know, if it hadn't been for that, you know, I'd, I'd be a totally different person for sure. Well, that's awesome. Um, I do have a follow-up question to all that. Are you gifted with the same memory as your grandmother? Oh, blessed. <laughs> uh, I, I certainly hope I will be. Um, there's, yeah, I forget stuff all the time. Well, okay, let me rephrase that. When it comes to history stuff, I'm pretty good remembering stuff. When anything outside of that, uh, it's, it's, it's not good. I mean, my grandmother, she could tell you who our great, great grandfather's sisters, brothers, aunts, mom, brother married, and she could tell you what she had for breakfast this morning. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh. I couldn't even tell you one thing from algebra right now. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. me either. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, sometimes, um, honestly, in the middle of all my research and studies, you know, to an outside person who doesn't really appreciate history, like they can look at what we do as a waste of time because they're like, why are you spending hours, weeks, months researching the wagon trains of Rosecrans army in, in Georgia? Or, Well, it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, and it's the aspect of, you know, it, it does seem weird and, and very detailed, but it's it comes from a place of it's connected to a bigger topic. Mm. You know, how does that wagon train influence the movement of the army and their success? And how does that success uh, help them gaining control of the area? How does gaining control of the area help them achieving the goal of the war? And how is achieving the goal of the war essentially going to set forth the motion of freeing a population in the United States? Like, it all goes back to a bigger, uh, these broader things, but, you know, going from big stuff down to really small stuff is for a lot of us, like, and I assume for you, it's fascinating. Just how does that connect to everything when you don't, you wouldn't even think about it. We all like think how the armies move and they fight or we know how they fight, but how do they get there? How do they sustain themselves until they get to the battle? It's, that's a whole other side of it that people don't often think about precisely and thank you for running away with that i'm glad you did that <laughs> <laughs> awesome awesome and uh um you know and, and when you were talking about your your living history work and, and programs um I, I remember this was a couple years ago um people might think this is interesting but uh, at one of your programs you had made like a sign outside your tent uh explaining what you are what you do are you like um you were answering questions in advance or do you, do you remember what i'm talking about yes so, <laughs> so the sign you know it was kind of uh it was like yes we are hot in these uniforms no that is not a real fire yeah you know yes that is a real fire uh no we are not 157 years old uh now that we got those questions i was a out of the way, feel free to ask us any other questions about the experiences of the common civil war soldier. <laughs> and no, it was, <laughs> it was, you know, it was one that like we would do these, uh, a program at the local county fair in, in Wilson County. And, you know, we'd spend hours doing research into what the, the program we were going to do. And, and we'd stand there and try to engage with people. And you'd have people come up and ask you, you look hot in that. <laughs> yeah it's wool yeah we know that 
<laughs> I've spent I've spent twelve hours doing research on the the uniforms of the of Kershaw's Brigade at Chickamauga. Ask me about something like that, <laughs> and of course, you know, for me, I had to I had to do I did have to realize like the public, they the general public's not going to know the extensive knowledge we do, and yeah. they may not know what questions to ask. And the way they may be trying to initiate the conversation is asking a question like that. Yeah. And so I had to turn that as like, okay, they're asking me this question, which I don't think is relevant, but maybe it's the way that they're trying to get a connection to me because they don't know what to ask. So I made that sign as kind of like a joke and, and literally like the people would walk by and they'd read it and they would start laughing because it's exactly <laughs> the question that they were about to ask me. Yes. yes. And I had several people come up to me. It's like, okay, we well, already answered most of my questions. So <laughs> tell me what you want to talk about. And the next thing I know, I'm explaining uh, the logistical aspects of cotton production and how that influences wartime inflation uh, for the Union Army. You know, like they're, <laughs> the cost of a shelter from $5 in 1861 to $15 in 1865. And explaining like, oh, who has the major means of cotton production? The South. And how is that influencing the, the uh, economics of the war and people are like I have like literally they were not expecting to learn such a, a concise but in-depth part of the war and it literally just came from laughing at a sign so, <laughs> well that's great it, it was a good way to break the ice and, and <laughs> yeah. you gotta start somewhere yeah. and, and and you're right I, I think we can overthink so much on a lot of the programs that we put together and, and think and and yeah, we don't realize that. Yeah, the the public isn't going to have the same nerdy knowledge that we have. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But yeah. but you hope that that they walk away learning something new, and then maybe they walk away from that. And y you always hope that at least one person goes home and does some extra research and and starts deep diving themselves. You know, um, and then it's worth it. You know. Yeah. Oh, and it, you know, it worked when I give tours and stuff. I tell people, I was like, hey, I'm not, I'm, I can't get through all this information. I mean, we're talking like a lot of information in 45 minutes to an hour. But if, you know, one or two people walk away from this tour thinking, oh, okay, well, I might go Google that later on. Okay. Um, that's good. I've done my job. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. As long as we can, like, okay, that's actually pretty fascinating. I'd, I'd like to learn more about that. Um, if we can initiate that, oh, that's awesome! Yeah, that's that's completely great. I'm I'm on, I'm on board for that 100. percent Awesome, awesome. So uh, that kind of that's a good uh, segue to my next question. Uh, how did the bearded historian come about, and how did uh, your many projects, your stickers, and uh, and you even have history through fashion on your social media? Uh, you have sketches, and uh, so how did all your different projects? Uh, the family of the bearded historian uh, get started. So it was kind of, I, I knew, I knew I wanted to get into the history field. Um, as far as like structured regular education in college, I took some intro to education class. I love those classes, but I, I did realize, okay, I don't want to do history in the school format. I want to mm -hmm. do it in a historic site or museum because there's some little bit more not saying that teachers can't be creative but there's a lot in, in the public 
history field, there's a little bit more um, of an atmosphere that conduces that type of different ways of creatively engaging people with history. And I was like, well, I can do this on my own. Um, and how can I do that? And it just really thinking about the social media format, which, you know, everyone has their own opinion on that. <laughs> how whether it's beneficial or the uh, downfall of a western civilization but that's a whole other podcast um but I, I figured this is this type of format is very conducive different types of projects that i want to do and it's going to engage it's going to cast a wider net um mm. if i want to do uh, a small vignette that's talking about um a soldier's letter experience or something like that, where I can have uh, guys portraying whoever's writing the letter, kind of like small scenes. I can do that. If I want to do something that's inspired by fashion, because my aspect, my mantra or my goal is to engage people with history in places and in ways they least expect it. Mm, I like that. So people don't, history is not in books yeah and it's not at national just at national parks it's not at just museums it's everywhere it's all around us it's in your own family it's in your own town and every aspect of things you engage with there's an aspect of history to it so the history through fashion is literally like how can i be a walking museum what what can I wear on my person where somebody says, oh, that's really cool. I was like, oh, hey, well, yeah, this actually, this tie clip is made from the wood of the barracks at Camp Tekoa, which is in Georgia, where the 101st Airborne trained. And people are like, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> and I literally <laughs> this came from somebody said, that's a really cool tie clip. I like that. Um, or, you know, this you look really sharp, man. It's like, oh, I appreciate that. Well, this is inspired by the Marines on Okinawa. <laughs> you know, even though I'm not wearing, like, reenacting gear it's it's inspired by that you know different time periods or stuff because it's not like i'm wearing like re like reenacting uniforms or anything like that it's it's modern clothing but it's inspired by aspects of history um i remember i, I dressed in kind of like a, a suit and sport jacket that had similar like colors and a vibe to like teddy roosevelt and the rough riders <laughs> so but that was like literally that's what I looked to is like aspects of history. How does that inform my person and how can I use that as kind of like a walking museum exhibit where I might go a whole day and nobody asks me about what I'm wearing. And that's totally fine. But someone might ask me, hey, I like that hat. Well, yeah, this is kind of similar to what the the it was inspired by the uh, the Rough Riders that Teddy Roosevelt rode with, you know, just being able to use that. And I felt like uh, the social media platform was the best way to. Uh, show that off to as many people um the sticker idea was okay so we have to give credit where credit's due um you know who baker Watkins is right yeah okay so <laughs> weirdly enough he was my muse for a long time uh he gained the nickname of tennessee pack mule Yes, yes. We were at the uh, Living History event in Franklin. He was literally carrying everyone's cooking gear. And so I just kind of made, uh, you know, I'm not an artist by no means, but I like to doodle and to, you know, amateurly do things with uh, graphic design. And, and I just like doing that. And so I drew some cartoons of him and everyone really enjoyed him. And then one, like, I remember going to a event, I don't remember which one it was, and I just remember, like, we were 
doing something and someone said the perfect line from Gettysburg at the exact right moment and it said exactly what everyone's thinking and everyone really laughed and and I I got the thing is like man we do this all the time like we go to an event we're doing a living history somebody will do something will happen and somebody will quote something from Gettysburg or guys and generals or saving Papa Ryan and it's the perfect thing yeah perfect moment and everybody knows exactly what it's from and I was like, what if I just made a sticker that has that line? <laughs> you know? And it was like, so I, I did it. I think the first ones I did were like Gettysburg quotes. And, oh, man, Civil War nerds, man, we can quote Gettysburg line oh. for line. <laughs> I, I can't go through one reenactment without the whole movie being quoted at some point. <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, so, you know, I thought, okay, well, it'd just be, you know, some reenactor buddies, they'll, they'll buy them occasionally every now and then. And then I quickly realized, like, oh, no, there's people who aren't reenactors, but they love history, and they love those movies as well. <laughs> so uh, it really kind of took off from there. And, and it's not it's not something like I'm like, oh, I'm going to make I'm, – I'm doing this to make a living off of. But if, <laughs> if that person is buys a sticker, they put it on their water bottle – and they go hiking at Gettysburg, and a vis- another visitor is like, "Oh, that's really cool! I love that. That's from the movie." And and then that that gets those people connecting, and they might talk about where they're at. So again, it's it's utilizing people engaging with history in, in places and ways they least expect it. And and anything I can do to help that, uh, I, I try. I try to to. Uh, well, you know, nowadays history can be seen as very divisive, but. From my experience, it's been nothing but bringing people together from all kinds of different backgrounds. And anything that I can do to help foster that, I think, I think is a really good thing. Oh, no, that's great. And it is a good thing. And, and we enjoy it, Jeff. Everybody. Right. <laughs> I'll tell you, uh, Jeff, I have a water bottle covered with your stickers. <laughs> the funny thing is, it doesn't I don't have to be at a battlefield. Yeah, I'm at work and. And I'm always getting people going, I love your water bottle, man. <laughs> yeah. And most of the time, most of the time they have no idea what the stickers represent or they just see like, oh, cowboys or something like they don't yeah. really know what it is. They just think, oh, cool. I like your cup. Yeah, yeah. And, but uh, every now and then I, I did get recently, uh, it was at church not long ago. Someone's like, oh, cool. Gettysburg. And I was like, oh, nice. Uh, yeah. See, you just connected with somebody. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I love it, man. Yeah, um, um, I'm gonna have to. I'm running out of room on my water bottle, so I'm gonna have to buy another water bottle. And... See, if I was smart, I'd get into the water bottle business too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, it worked out because what I did was I have a blue water bottle, so I bought all of like your union characters uh, stickers, and and it just spits, you know, it blends in. And so my next idea is to get like a army green um water bottle get all like all your banner brother stickers <laughs> so yeah, i'll have like yeah. my world war ii cup and my civil war cup. <laughs> you're just uh, collecting water bottles for stickers now <laughs> yeah yeah that, exactly exactly hey i go for a lot of water man uh when you're hiking out there uh it, it yeah <laughs> i've been on those long hikes yeah well and good. just just so people know, they also look great on coolers. <laughs> <laughs> hey, they could go on anything, a laptop, uh, you name it. Yeah, put yeah. It, put it on your friend's back when you <laughs> <want> back. <laughs> That's how you spread the word on. 
<laughs> you pat somebody on the back with uh we should have gone to the right sticker. <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> oh man. Well, this is awesome, man. <laughs> so, um, my next question for you is, uh, of course you obviously have a passion in particular for Tennessee history. You're a Tennessean. Um, I assume you've always been uh, a Tennessean, but, uh, can you, um, briefly review or, or discuss, um, in your opinion, some of uh, what the importance of Tennessee in the war and maybe some highlights, some uh, of the crucial events in Tennessee during the war, um, in your opinion? That's, I mean, that's a good question. Um, there's, you know, every state, you know, as far as the surrounding the Civil War does play, you know, a significant role. And I, but I think really Tennessee, it's so dynamic, um, even just the differences between the regions, you know, Middle Tennessee, West Tennessee, East Tennessee, um, looking in how that just played into the election of 1860, which is fascinating. Um, you know, and it's kind of like the, it's kind of like the gateway into the deep south. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to make it very instrumental of of as far as union army gaining control of it because once they have you know like middle tennessee it's 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 busted wide open to the deep south and i always kind of try to explain the metaphor of you know like fort donaldson and Hen- in fort henry nashville yes. is the lock murfreesboro is going to be uh the doorknob oh you know turning and then chattanooga is just the door busting wide open and that's it's really going to, especially with Nashville being a, a major river and railroad hub, the logistics of of how the army is going to funnel all their supplies down to the deep south is, again, that goes back to that fascinating aspect of that very minute, like, oh, the wagon trains. Well, how does that influence by the, the supply system that's coming out of Nashville or Middle Tennessee or, or this area? And I think that's that's really fascinating to understand of how dynamic the, the state is. You know, something I think is one of the two of the most underrated the Tennessee Civil War history, I do think is, in my opinion, the Battle Stones River and the Tullahoma campaign. Mm. Uh, you know, Murfreesboro is going to gain a, a pretty good foothold for the Union Army. Um, the Tullahoma campaign essentially is when Rosecrans gains control of Middle Tennessee and he does it in the most efficient and least casualty way. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's brilliant in the aspect of how he's able to do that, and he's literally fighting against the army where most of them are from this area. Mm-hmm. So, you know that, and that's going on at the same time as Vicksburg and as is Gettysburg, but just be able to gain control of a major area with very minimal casualties in the most efficient way possible is, I think, is something that's not it's overlooked very often for sure. <clears throat> No, um, um, uh, for sure. And to go back a little bit, um, <laughs> I've always been of the opinion that I, I really think Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson and Nashville early in the war right there is underrated. A lot of people don't, a lot of people don't, they don't really focus too much on that, that that was really bad for the Western Confederacy than people think sometimes. And, you know, we all know Shiloh and, some of the other bigger names that happened later, but I mean, Fort Henry and Fort Dawson and losing the river that early, um, that was a big blow early in the war. 
Um, yeah. Bigger blow than I think people kind of realize sometimes. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you can read accounts of, you know, when Fort Henry and Donaldson fall, people in Nashville are freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> They're really freaking out. And, you know, when the, the federal army comes into Nashville, it's like, there's accounts of them saying like, oh, the streets are empty. Like everyone is like booked it. They're out. You know, the the shopkeepers were opening up the doors like, take whatever you want. They ain't going to be here when they get here. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really, it's fascinating to see like, you know, a lot of people who are starting to realize like, oh, this is not going to be as easy of a, of a, of a fight as we, as we think it would from the, the Southern perspective, you know, this is, this is something that's very serious and it, happening really fast for sure we and, and that's that again is the difference with what's happening in east versus west and in, in the war like you know lee and the army northern virginia come out swinging from the get-go and yeah. and, the, and the the union armies in the east are constantly under the pressure of that but then in the west the confederate armies in the west are always the one under the pressure from the get-go yeah it's like a losing battle almost from the beginning out there. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you're talking about trying to, to, to defend a vast, vastly bigger area. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. The logistical side of that is, is going to be a nightmare, you know, compared to like a smaller area, like Virginia and in, in Maryland and in that region, they're kind of able to maneuver with their, they have the appropriate size army for the appropriate area. Whereas the Western theater is so vast compared. That's going to be a hard, a hard area to kind of defend. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, and, and one thought I had uh, with, you mentioned how well Rosecrans handled that middle Tennessee campaign. I mean, and, and he's fighting against an army of guys who are from that area and, it's almost like to get bested on your home field advantage uh, <laughs> uh, that had to hurt for, for many of the Tennessee soldiers to know that like we keep getting knocked out of our own home state or we can't even control our own communities. Like, you know, some of these guys in Virginia for several years, they never had to worry about like some of their, communities getting harmed you know till later in the war but like tennessee most of these guys were separated from their homes from the get-go uh that must have been hard for the soldiers of tennessee oh yeah i mean you can read accounts of that uh for sure you know how what's the morale after the tola campaign yeah. you know and then it, think how does that play into the mentality of the net the franklin and nashville campaign we're like wait we're gonna go try and get this back let's do it you know um, yeah. that you know being able to return your home to your home after it had, you've been separated from, for so long how how is that going to mentally play into that campaign you know later on in the war that's that, i mean that's mentality of of the soldiers of the time period or any any time period is is fascinating to how does morale play into that how do the how does the emotion of the common soldier play into their effectiveness of being a fighting force which that's a, that's a whole other side to, to civil war history that's just utterly fascinating oh yeah yeah well there's so many different <laughs> sides and angles you could take on all these topics and subjects but um well you know to me i can't think of a, a more dramatic landscape than uh the franklin tennessee campaign um in november 64 when uh you know these guys are literally you know 
a grand scale pickets charge again on their own soil, charging towards their own town, their own hometown, their own families, uh, or the houses where their families live. Yeah, yeah. Uh, terrible. I mean, uh, terrible but dramatic at the same time, and just showing, um, I guess, the... I don't know. I guess the stupidity of a war like this, just the, the crazy things that can happen uh, in a civil war. Yeah. How, 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 uh, how rationally irrational it is. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's, you know, even the human aspect of, of the civil war, especially in like you mentioned the Franklin and Nashville campaign, you know, you have Todd Carter literally attacking, leading an attack on his own home. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you're like, oh, that's that's a, that's from a TV show or movie. No, that's that's real. Yeah, really like, happened. That's real life. <laughs> so it, you know that even because that's re- that's something that's relatable in the aspect of like you would think about well, what would I do, you know, what would happen if I had to literally like fight on my own home? Like I haven't seen my home for three years. I have to literally go fight to gain it back. Like, how does that mentally play into the mindset of the soldier who's going to be, you know, moving across from Winstead Hill towards the Carter house? Mm. You know, these people, some of these people have lived in the area. <laughs> like, this is their hometown. Like, how does that mentally play into uh, how desperate of a fight it would become? It, you know, there's many accounts, different battles where it's no longer a battle to fight the war. It's it's a soldier's fight. They're just mm-hmm. duking it out with each other. And that's going to happen at, at Spotsylvania, other battles. And I think there's certainly an aspect of that at Franklin and, and at Nashville, because it's, it's more so like you're fighting veterans. It's veterans against veterans. They're fighting each other, not, not the different governments or the ideals. It's, it's the soldiers blows against, against each other. Uh, and I think that happens in any armed conflict that lasts <laughs> Uh, several years like there comes a point where soldiers even forget why the heck we're doing this you just you've been living a soldier for so long that you're just fighting to survive or you're fighting for the guy next to you right and, and you can see in the diaries of these guys i mean just honestly just pick up any diary of a civil war soldier and in the beginning you know in 1861 they're writing about cause and country and and you know all this patriotism on either side and then by mid-war, they're starting to get bitter, and they're starting. They're not. They're not talking about hurrah, Jeff Davis, or like oh, preserve the <laughs> union. Like they're not saying that stuff anymore. Yeah, like uh, you don't hear it, and and they get bitter, and they, the war is dragging on, and the politicians are still saying that, you know. But for the men who are actually on the field doing the work and doing the fighting, uh, their perspective changes greatly after a few months of battle. It's it's remarkable. Oh, yeah. Well, I do have a question for you, Stephen. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So, I have to ask, are you east or west? Oh, boy. Well, (laughs) (laughs) well, uh, I'll I'll confess right now that I really want to keep pursuing uh, the Western theater. Um, In fact, I, I have a plan to make a Chickamauga book in the future. So I really want to start deep diving into Chickamauga and some of the Western campaigns. However, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I'm one of those typical people like by the thousands who 
more or less Gettysburg itself is one of the reasons why I got so deeply involved in Civil War history. <laughs> and I'm in the process right now that for the last year, it's coming up on a year now, I've been working on a book about Gettysburg. And so I've been doing nothing but read, write, and listen <laughs> to <Gettysburg laughs> content for the last year. So even right now while we're talking, like I'm trying to get Gettysburg out of my head and, and recollect the, all, all the different events that we're talking about right now. And I really, um, I mean, I've written about stuff <laughs> in the West before. <laughs> but, um, it's funny, like uh, once you get, once you go down one road for a while, you kind of just deep dive into something and you have to try to get out of it again. So like I'm trying to finish this project so I can get back to the West. But <laughs> I appreciate both theaters uh disclaimer i appreciate both theaters they're very important both in their own rights but i'll confess i spend most of my time in the east <laughs> well i can say i appreciate both as well but west is best baby east is least <laughs> well i have a follow-up question for you jeff uh and uh this might put you on the spot <laughs> <laughs> so I want you to uh, uh, <laughs> humor me for a minute and okay pretend you are Jeff Davis for, for uh, just a minute and <laughs> Braxton Bragg Joseph Johnston and John Bell Hood are all in the room with you and you have to pick one to command the Army of Tennessee who do you pick and why oh my god <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. Right back at you, Jeff. The, okay. <laughs> what is... Well, okay, what's the choices again? Braxton Bragg, Joseph Johnston, and John Bell Hood. Who do oh you... Oh, my God. <laughs> is this, like, to command them throughout the entire war or just specifically? Mm, I'll say the whole war. <laughs> <laughs> oh. and, and just yeah. on uh, your opinion of all three and what they actually did and accomplished, who do you think would have done the best job for the duration? <laughs> okay. I, and I know, I know this could be a podcast all on its own. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, all right. So I am going... I'm going to go with John Bill Hood. Ah, because <laughs> okay, people are already people have left the show already. Jeff. <laughs> yeah, I know. You got to defend your decision now. You so, gotta... I, I think there's there's elements of of Braxton Bragg that is going to be even in the case of like how he was not he was so at odds with so many of his subordinates that it, it, there was kind of like a, a a standstill, like how that that the the diminishing of that those relationships how does it play out into the successes of his command where people are kind of doing stuff out of spite not necessarily because they're in support of him um johnston in some aspects i think was beneficial to the morale of the army but as far as being aggressive when he needed to be not necessarily always the case <laughs> Uh, John Bell Hood, in the aspect of he is aggressive, which I think early on in the war might have been beneficial to them. Um, but by the time of, of 
Na- Franklin and Nashville, being that aggressive was literally just a straight up gamble. And he mm. knew it. He knew like, he's like, I, you know, I've been aggressive this before it's worked out. Uh, I, it may not, I don't have as many resources now, but I can still try and get this gamble. Whereas early on in the war, if he had been that aggressive at the right time um, in the Western theater uh, might've been a little bit more beneficial for them. So that's my answer. And probably (laughs) just lost like my followers. (laughs) (laughs) Logically, logically trying to think through it, you know, there's no, you know, what if history is always fun to talk about, but you know, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Which I I will say, I mean, uh, hood came close. I mean, there was a few things in that Franklin campaign that almost went his way. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking, uh, Spring Hill when they almost bottled up or, or cut separated the Union Army and let them sneak through and entrench in, in time, you know, make defenses and I mean, so yeah, what ifs, but you know, maybe we'd be having a different conversation if a couple of things had played out differently, but You're right. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think by that time he was he was making some pretty major gambles. I think they were more calculated gambles than people give him credit for, mm-hmm. but it, they were still they were big gambles, you know. After the debacle at Spring Hill, Franklin is his last effort, and the conditions at Franklin are almost exactly the same as when he what he did at Gaines Mill, and he was successful there. It was like, yeah. oh, this is. I mean, I've done something <laughs> like this before, and it paid out. Maybe it'll pay out again, and it doesn't. <laughs> it does like, not. You know, um, uh, not to harp on this for too long, but um, <laughs> you know, one question I've always had, or, or that's always troubled me, is after such a massive defeat at, at Franklin, I mean, you have, what, 7,000 casualties? And, I mean, just destruction, just demoralized, and... The Union Army gets away again. They, they sneak away from Franklin. But what amazes me is the day after that bloodshed, they continue north. I mean, the Hood continues the advance and goes towards Nashville and besieges Na- Nashville. And I, to me, that's just remarkable. Like, you know, he didn't – like, you know, obviously many guys – like six generals died in that battle. You, you have cohesion of – you have new brigade commanders popping up and uh, you have guys stunned that their, their own family or their own farms might be burned down or all their brothers have just died in this battle. And here you go forward. Uh, you know, what would the opinion or thoughts of these soldiers would be after that, you know? Yeah. And that's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's interesting to think about because, you know, even you're talking about veterans by 64, you know, these yeah. guys- and they're hard fought. They've seen rough stuff. And, you know, even after Franklin, they could have the mindset of like, oh, it's it's done. You know, we're this is it. We need to walk away. Or it's like, oh, we literally have one more chance. So it's it's like we have to do this. Yeah. But it's interesting to think about, like, how does that mentality, like just the thought process of going through something like Franklin and be like, OK, we're going to march north and try to fight again like how 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 does a human do that <laughs> you yeah. know oh yeah and and you know i remember um you know at post nashville after the 
And that may have been to me the most humiliating defeat for anybody <laughs> the RB Tennessee at Nashville. And but after that, you know, I don't even know how many made it out. I forget what twenty thousand maybe make it out of there. And but like by the time they, you know, they retreat back to North Alabama. And then I remember reading like the whole like when they get called over to join Johnston in the Carolinas, like the whole time the Army of Tennessee is marching through Tennessee, Georgia, guys are leaving by the hundredfold. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, guys are just getting off and like, I'm sorry, guys, I'm done. I'm going to Georgia or I'm going back home. And by the time they get to like uh, Bentonville, like there's like 4,000 left yeah. <laughs> of the whole Army of Tennessee. And, and man, I, I will say this to kind of close this. Um, if you look at the order of battle for the Bentonville campaign um, and look at the Army of Tennessee among some of the other units there, it is depressing. Yeah. Depressing to see if you see the number totals in some cases. And you look at these regiments that have been molded into consolidated regiments, like like the 20th Tennessee, for example, they got brigaded. I mean, they the remnants of like 12 regiments made one regiment. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's insane, you know, just like when you look, that's how it is in every brigade in the Army of Tennessee. It's like you have 12 regiments consolidated together, and they might total like 100 or 200 guys. Yeah. And it's just um, crazy. It's really crazy. I mean, at that point, it's almost over. <laughs> the war is coming to an end, but um, just remarkable. Yeah. And there's, there, there's that, I think it's an account from Bentonville where, I don't know if it was a Confederate account or a Union account, but they said like, the Army of Tennessee, all the, the regimental flags are like very close together because all the, the regiments were so small. You know, they weren't they weren't spread out like, you know, early on in the war. Yeah. You know, essentially, regimental flags like right next to each other because the, the regiments were so small by that point. It's, it's crazy. Well, if I remember, right, like uh, uh, when General Bate led an advance um, during the battle, uh, Bate's old division only had like 800 guys left in the entire division. Jeez. <laughs> Wow. If I remember right, uh, I think <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was stunned, you know, reading this and looking at it. I'm like, oh my gosh. But, you know, they still operated as like a division, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's almost like, you know, like, oh, well, we can't, you know, we got to make bait feel good. We can't, you know, take away his division. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was a lot of that going on too. But, um, but anyway, I just had to mention <laughs> it made yeah. me think of that. But, but, you know, uh, on that same kind of note, though, um, speaking of regiments and such, and this podcast is about uh, regiments and units in the Civil War, um, do you have a particular uh, pet regiment or uh, a regiment that you enjoy researching and studying frequently, whether Union or Confederate? Are there particular units that, that you really pursue? So there's a couple. Um, so I grew up, you know, in reenacting, like the first unit I was I was with was the 46th Tennessee, and they were out of Henry County, and um, so you know, portraying aspects of that unit. Okay, I wanted to learn a little bit more about them. So um, you know, they had a fascinating early on in the war. They were at Island Number Ten. They were many of them were captured and sent to to Camp Douglas. 
in uh, Johnson's Island, and then they reorganized with the 55th Tennessee, and then they were at Franklin and in Nashville and at Bentonville, and uh, just you know really cool stories. And they're Tennesseans, and it's very interesting to learn about aspects of people from your own state, you know, connecting to that you know, personal history. Um, another regiment is the 10th Indiana, um, which I uh, the historic site that I work at. Uh, when Nashville fell, uh, the 10th Indiana uh, came in on, on steamboats and, and got off at Riverfront, and they marched six miles out of town and encamped at where I work. And I was like, oh, this is, this is really cool. So I started doing research into them, and I found um, pictures of their regimental flag. And I was like, well, I wonder if I can remake that. So I, I reproduced their regimental flag and kind of started putting together a kit for like, okay, hey, you know, maybe at work I can do some living history programs and talk about um, the 10th Indiana Regiment that was actually encamped um, at that site. And they they fought it, um, uh, it was Fisher Creek, but it was, uh, oh my gosh, the Confederate name for that. In Mill Springs. Mill Springs, yeah, Mill Springs. Uh, they fought there. Um, they some major campaigns in, in the Western theater. They were at Rosaka, which is really cool. And, and uh, two years in a row, the group I went with, we portrayed the 10th Indiana and they had, they had these red, white, and blue um, silk hat cords. Which, oh, that's where that came from. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what we, we, you know, and it's, you know, they, some of them early on were wearing state jackets, but by 64, they're, you know, they're wearing, sack coats and stuff but yeah um, being able to kind of just that little bit of a detail really everyone really enjoyed that and it kind of connected them to that event a little bit deeper i guess and it was kind of fun to be able to the other guys that were portraying it you know get them to learn about them a little bit more and, and having a connection to a, them being a camp where, where i work and now i'm portraying them at a a, a, a battle reenactment i think it was, it was just really cool to kind of connect that way um, oh, another one, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and that's always fun. Like when you when we portray specific units, it's diving into their history and, and the people that were in those regiments is that's the fun part for me. You know, yeah, yeah. I feel ugh, it sounds corny and fishy, but you feel like they're like you're connected to them, and it's a person that's been dead for over a hundred years. Like you feel like they're speaking to you through their their own experiences and to be able to at least kind of slightly understand what they went through is uh, for me is powerful so yeah. i really enjoyed that um another regiment which a lot of people know about in the civil war nerd world uh is the 7th wisconsin oh yeah, yeah. the iron brigade and so i last year year before i went to a state sale here in middle tennessee and I got about 35 letters uh, written by a Thomas Seals, who was the color sergeant for Company C of a 7th Wisconsin. Really? And, yeah. Letter, and also his brother was in the um, 123rd Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. And Thomas and his family were originally from Pennsylvania. Their uh, grandfather who was a Revolutionary War veteran, had helped um, settle Waynesburg, Pennsylvania. And in the 1850s, Thomas moved with his uncle to uh, Galena, Illinois, 
which is just across the state line from from Wisconsin. And uh, when the war breaks out, uh, well, actually, in the election of 1860, he was a wide awake, so oh, wow. he was a Lincoln supporter. And one of his letters references um, his other brother, his name was Archibald, visiting because he had actually joined the circus when he was a teenager. <laughs> And uh, he came there and they went to one of the drill sessions for the wide awakes and uh, they were talking about that. And he's, he's kind of had that, that like, you know, give me liberty or give me death writing these letters. And he, he's writing to his mother saying, Hey, you need to tell my other brother he, that the D democratic party is dead. He needs to vote Republican. And he, and he tells his mother, don't try to convince dad. He's, he's a staunch Democrat as any other person in Waynesburg. <laughs> so it's like, you know, and I'm reading this and this is, you know, election year. So it's, it's just fascinating to see, like, this is not something new. Yeah. You know, yeah. this is the people, families are having these same type of discussions 150 years ago as they are in, in today's world. And it just felt so relevant and so connected to it. And the fact that he was a wide awake was just really cool because I, kind of recently done a little bit of a wormhole dive into that and he joins up with the seventh wisconsin um he's gonna fight at uh antietam uh fredericksburg um and his him and his other brother that joins the pennsylvania regiment they're kind of sometimes they're in the same camp one of the letters from thomas mentions that his brother is visiting him and he's standing in the tent with him and so you're now you're connecting two people in one space, which is really cool. And I think in the fall of 63, I don't know exactly when, but he gets captured because I have a letter from his buddy who's writing to his mother and saying, hey, I haven't heard from Thomas, but he has been captured and he's been sent to Andersonville. Oh, wow. So he survives Andersonville, moves to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. He's a... Uh, a watchman at a mill. His son is postmaster in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. <laughs> His granddaughter was in Manila when Japan invaded, and she was held as a prisoner for five years until the war ended in 1945. So everything's connected. Yeah. Everything's connected somewhere. <laughs> yeah, and you know Thomas, he he went to the 1913 Gettysburg anniversary event. Oh wow. Um, he passed away in uh, 1918 or 1919. And there's a newspaper article that said that his house is right next to the baseball field. And he was out on his front porch watching the baseball game. And he walked inside to talk to his wife. And he pulled the chair up at the kitchen table, sat down, started talking to her. And he drooped his head down and he just passed away. Wow. And so just in doing Remarkable research into this whole family was just it was such a cool I'm like i feel like i know this person <laughs> you know well how long um, i had to ask him how long was he a color bearer so i don't there's a couple little gaps and the, there, there were other letters at the estate sale that i wasn't able to get i only got about 30 35 gotcha. Of them. gotcha so there's some there's a couple gaps in 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 some of the correspondence that may have wow important information and yeah. at one point i think right before or right after antietam uh there's an officer that references that um the next battle they went to after uh antietam thomas wasn't at because he was sick so they had handed off um 
the color uh, color guard to somebody else. And I don't think he he was not the color bearer at at Gettysburg because there's there's accounts of another person carrying it. Well, but, if he if he had been, he may not have lived that long. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, that's the thing. He's in the regiment that has like the third highest casualty rate in the Army of the Potomac, and he's a color bearer. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. he survives the war. <laughs> well, that's that's great, and and um, I, I have to tell you uh, because I just read this the other day. But uh, uh, fun fact, if you didn't know already, but did you know that the Seventh Wisconsin is a regiment that finally let John Burns fight with them? Well, oh, was that the Seventh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so wow. if you know, John Burns got passed. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. If you read the accounts, like two or three regiments say like, oh, cool. You know, oh, you're such a patriot. Oh, yeah, that's so nice of you. But uh, hey, why don't you go to the regiment down to the left? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He literally goes for like like the 150 of Pennsylvania. Like I think he goes for like the whole Bucktail Brigade. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then they keep passing him to the left. And like the seventh Wisconsin is the first one that's kinda like, oh yeah, yeah, follow in with us, old timer, you know. <laughs> and uh in their account, you know, um I think the Bucktail guys, I think they kind of joke about his appearance and they're kind of skeptical of him. Yeah, yeah. But like when he gets to the Iron Brigade, when he gets to South Wisconsin, they're a little more like, oh, like their account of him is a lot more dramatic. Like this epic, gallant, you know, veteran of the war of 1812 joined our ranks. And there's a story of him like, like uh, they're joking about him not being able to use his old musket. And he apparently <laughs> shoots a uh, Confederate officer off his horse. And everybody's all amazed by his accuracy. But like, you know, we can only hope some of these things are, are true. <laughs> But, know, uh, but no, like, that's the only thing I remembered about the Seventh Wisconsin. <laughs> I know, like John Burns, he was kind of like the town curmudgeon. Yes, I like, to think, I like I like to think in like in modern terms, he's like the town Karen. Yes, like, <laughs> he goes out into the field. He's like, I need to speak to a manager. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No. Well, um, I just listened to a whole like podcast deep dive on it, but, like. <laughs> town gossiper too like he was the one always full of gossip <laughs> and my one last john burns this is not the john burns podcast but, but one last thing that i heard was the funniest thing i heard is when he got injured he told one of the soldiers to go tell his wife to come pick him up <laughs> so, so like think of this the battle the first day of Gettysburg raging the Confederates are advancing upon the town and he's over there in the middle of all this and he goes hey can you go tell my wife to get the wagon and come pick me up and, <laughs> I don't want to do and goes, soldier <laughs> finds Mrs. Burns and then says um, hey you know your husband is out there on the field and he wants you to pick him up and she goes ah I told him not to go out there <laughs> <laughs> And I, I don't know if all that's true. <laughs> well, I feel it's like one of those things you can't make it up, though. It's like <laughs> I know. I, <laughs> I want to believe that's true. I want to believe yes. that's Yes, totally. Oh, my God. Well, man, uh, uh, another question I had was, um, you know, speaking of uh, your favorite regiments, do you have a favorite memoir, uh, a favorite regimental history, or a book that you would recommend uh, for people to read? Oh, okay. So I know there's a lot. <laughs> there's so many. <laughs> um, 
I think, well, it's not really a memoir, but it's it pulls from a lot of letters and in other memoir aspects. And it's, uh, you may have heard of it, it's called War for the Common Soldier by Peter Carmichael. Yes. And it's, what I really like that he did is that he, it's very common for like historians and Civil War people to kind of look at letters and cherry pick from different things. What he really wanted to do is look at, at a collection of letters from one soldier over a greater span of time mm. and see how that evolves over that course of time. And it's really a fascinating look into, I mean, trying to understand the psychology of the common soldier. That book really hits home with that. And he also, I mean, he in a, another interesting way is he utilizes material culture through that you know explaining what does the phys physical emotion connected to receiving a letter or not receiving a letter or then describing items that they're getting for food or for clothing um so it, it's it's it was really cool to see kind of like the material culture aspect of examining those collections of letters which was really really fascinating i and, it, and you're kind of pulling it from different all kinds of different accounts uh which i really really enjoyed another great book that kind of just gets you to look at it from a completely different perspective um <clears throat> it's a book called the slaves war by andrew ward and he kind of really examines the american civil war but utilizing accounts memoirs and oral history traditions from enslaved people and how oh, wow. they're looking at the war. And it's it's really cool because it's broken up by years of the war. Yeah. By theaters of the war. So if you want to see like, okay, what are the enslaved people in the Western theater thinking or observing in 1862? We well, can oh, turn yeah. right to that section. And so it's it was really cool to just kind of like, okay, I mean looking at that experience not from the soldier aspect but from the enslaved aspect yeah was, oh this is there i mean it's like there's similarities but there's also just drastically difference to it which mm -hmm. is which is really cool um and even though they're not necessarily memoirs are kind of founded in a lot of those accounts and stuff and it and, and it kind of examining those accounts it's not like a, a, a textbook kind of history of it Yes. Yeah. Which uh, it was. It was just kind of a, uh, an eye-opening aspect of like, oh, how is how is somebody who is, you know, literally from a completely different perspective viewing how this war is going, <laughs> and yeah. how that compares to the Western theater to those who are enslaved in the Eastern theater, which is really really fascinating. Wow, that is yeah. I'll have to keep that one in mind too. I'm always, I'm always getting books, Jeff. I'm always adding more to the list. <laughs> yeah, we need, we need books like another hole in the head, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh man, wow. Uh, oh, and, and what about? Um, would you? Do you have one favorite battle study? Like, do you have one favorite like battle book? Okay, so. Um, oh my gosh, the name of the book just went blank on me. Um, but it's, it's the, the book about Franklin that Lee White did. 
Oh, oh, um, oh, oh, I, you know what? I got it on my shelf. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the name of it just like went right out of my brain. Um, I'm relocating to the shelf. Is it Die Like Men or something? Oh my gosh. If he's yeah. listening to this, he's killing us right now. <laughs> let us die like men. Let us, yes, yes. Let us die like men. Yes. Let us die like men. The Battle of Franklin. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it, is that that's a part of the Emerging Civil War series, right? Yes. I, yes. Yeah. Right. Any really anything that's coming from them is is mm-hmm. gonna be great. Um, it I I really enjoyed it. Um, it's 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 not super heavy. I think for people who are just getting into it, it it, it dies in death, but it's not overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's really good. Um, and they are they are typically smaller size books <laughs> compared to like a. Like <laughs> compared to like the Dave Powell Chickamauga series or the right. <laughs> Gettysburg series, it's like total a thousand or more pages. Those are for the people who really want to deep dive. But if you want to begin and and really uh, learn the basics of the battle and the essentials, you know, like uh, you know, you can you know you can explain a battle in in two hundred pages given the right you know <clears throat> perspectives and everything. But yeah. And that's that you know that's that's a, a one I really enjoy. Um, a, another one that kind of goes back a little bit to the the memoirs and accounts is the eyewitness books. Um, they had a series, you know, they did one for Stones River, Franklin, Hello, yes. Perryville. Um, I believe the author has passed away. I don't know if they're still in print or not because uh, I went to go pick one up. His name and- was uh, David Logston. Yes. Yes. And um, and he did four or five. I want to say like I think I have all of them. I, he did a Perryville one, uh, Ford Donaldson. Yeah. He did Shiloh. Uh, Those for... are amazing battlefield trekking books. Like, yeah, you, you want to take those with you when you go hiking on a battlefield because it's broken up chronologically how the battles yes. are and by you know areas. And like you can literally stand and read the account of a soldier who's yeah. fighting that <laughs> the most perfect battlefield trekking book, in my opinion. <laughs> oh yeah, and they're light, they're lightweight, easy to carry. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Now uh, <laughs> I always loved those because um I I personally love the Voices of the Civil War Time Life series. Um I have that full collection, love those books. And but again, most of their volumes are Eastern theater, and yeah. so his books kind of focus on a lot of those Western battles, like Fort Tunnels and Berryville, that didn't get a time my volume. So like uh, I like it was like a good um, addition to the collection of eyewitness books, and oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I love anything like that. Um, I'm all for. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, for me, me, me too. Love you see, my problem, my problem, Jeff, is the Gettysburg book I'm working on right now. I'm afraid it's going to end up being like a thousand pages and <laughs> I, I don't want it. I want it to be something that people is accessible, but like my problem is I find too many damn good accounts that <laughs> like, I want this in there. Yeah. <laughs> like it's hard to like, be like, you know, you're trying to edit it and, and or cut out some passages, but you're like, Oh, this is just so good. Uh, <laughs> it's hard. It's a hard. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I don't, I don't doubt that at all. But man, um, I know we're uh, coming down, uh, we're winding down here, but uh, one last uh, question I had for you was, um, 
battlefields. Um, do you personally have a favorite battlefield that you like to visit? And is there a battlefield that you've never been to that you'd like to visit? So, uh, I'm going to say for me is Stones River. Um, again, it's kind of another underrated mm -hmm. place. It's not, it's not, you know, huge like Chickamauga or Gettysburg. It's kind of in the middle of a, a town. It doesn't have all the big monuments and stuff, but just the story and the as the stories of it and the aspect of it, how important it is that and people don't realize it. Mm -hmm. it it's very underrated. And, you know, especially for me, it, it being such a part of local history for me. And it's a yeah. place I grew up going to. It's very nostalgic. Oh, yeah. You know, it's it's for and it for many of us who are very passionate about Civil War history, you know, these some of these battlefields are like home to us mm -hmm. because this is oh, where we grew up as kids. This is where we fostered our imagination, our love for history. It's, so it's not just you know the aspect of learning about the battles and the people there, but it's also it's reconnecting with your roots. You know, the beginnings of the passion of your of your craft of of being a historian. And so Stones River is that for me, <laughs> you know. Uh, and just be able to go 15 minutes down the road and just, you know, having a, a rough day or you need to clear your mind like, well, I can go back to my to this place, my Zen place, which is where a lot of carnage <laughs> happened, <laughs> weirdly enough. Um, and it's it's just fascinating and to learn new stuff about it all the time. It's just and that's for many sites. But for me, yeah. River, it's it's that it's my hometown battlefield. It's you know, it's the place I grew up going to. So. Um, as far as a place I love to visit, um, man, I, hmm. you've probably been to a lot already. <laughs> yeah, I have, um, I'm trying to think of maybe where I haven't been, um, geez. Um, I do want to go to Harper's Ferry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've That's never real. been to Harbor's Ferry. Um, yeah. There's aspects, not, you know, because there was actions and stuff that happened in the area, but also just 19th century architecture. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's just yeah. so much there for different people who have different passions for that time period. Yeah. Uh, I, and I've, you know, pictures I've seen, it just seems like a very beautiful place. And it it's is. also where they filmed the Fredericksburg scene for Guys and Generals. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes, they did, and um, uh, and you're right. There's loads of history there. It's it's a little hard to visit there too because they don't have like parking there. You have to get shuttled there. Yeah. So yeah. kind of just drive through and explore. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I literally, when I went, I pretty much had to keep driving in circles around there, taking pictures out of my car because I didn't have time, you know, to take <laughs> tours. But I'd love to go back to Harper's Ferry Road with, when I had more time because yeah. it really is place oh yeah <laughs> well that's great yeah you'll have to you have to make some time to go up there <laughs> yeah. yes yes road trip dude <laughs> <laughs> there's always another road trip oh yeah <laughs> whenever the gas prices go down <laughs> uh, oh yeah <laughs> so, um uh so to close with um uh many of your friends and fellow reenactors know that you are known also for your Ed Bear's impression. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So <laughs> the famous historian, those who don't know, he's recently, I think a few years passed away. Uh, Ed Bears, uh, he was, uh, I mean, so many history documentaries. He led so many battlefield tours. Very iconic guy, very iconic voice. So if Ed Bears had to endorse uh, the civil regiments projects, what would Ed Bears say? <laughs> um okay i'm trying to think if i should do a younger ed bears or the older ed bears classic (laughs) always classic ed bears yeah okay um if general john bell hood i'd listen to civil war regiments podcast by stephen lunsford perhaps the Battle of Nashville would have been successful <laughs> and he would not have retreated and Middle Tennessee would not have been lost. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah, so hopefully, uh, for those of you, uh, you will put this on as you fall softly to sleep and think of sweet dreams of Ed Bears. Because that right. man made Chuck Norris look like a little girl. <laughs> That's right. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Pull up pull up videos of Ed Bears online. <laughs> yeah. Ed Bears tonight. But yeah. uh this has been a blast, uh Jeff. Uh thank you so much for coming on. Uh this was a lot of fun. Oh man, this yeah, this is it it's always great catching up with you, man. It's and I I I am very very grateful that you asked me to do this because I was like, oh, I don't know. Am I interesting? I don't know. <laughs> uh, this, you know, this is just shooting the stuff, man. It's and it's fun. That's what that's what history nerds do. We uh we connect through our passion, and it doesn't matter who you are if you love history. <laughs> that's right, and and I will say in our shared hobby of of going to reenactments and stuff, uh, surprisingly, there's not always a lot of time on your hands to talk and. <laughs> it's kind of hard to deep dive, you know? And so uh, this is another way to kind of have some extra time, extra conversations like that. So I appreciate it, man. And uh, you know what? I I probably have to have you on again because we could deep dive in so many different topics. So this was a lot of fun. So (laughs) thank you very much, Jeff. (laughs) I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Stephen. I appreciate it. You have a good one, man. And I, I will say for uh, listeners, I'll be putting this in the show notes. But uh, again, Jeff is the bearded historian. He's on Facebook. He's on Instagram. Um, he, you have an Etsy shop. Uh, it's under bearded, the bearded historian on Etsy. Yes, correct. That's right. Yes. And uh, and follow follow the bearded historian on social media and you'll see the history through fashion. You'll see Jeff's sketch work and you'll see the accounts that he pulls up and also watch for those sticker sales, you know, so there's always a new sticker popping up from a new history movie. So uh, it's all good stuff. So please check all that out. But but again, thank you, Jeff. Have a good evening. And uh, thanks again. Yeah, you'll have a good one. (laughs) Take care, man. See you, man.